Hello, everyone, and welcome to an all-new episode of Palace Off the Top Row Presents 90s Films Turn 30. Thank you so much for joining me, ladies and gentlemen. And we are finally in the month of December, which means we are inching closer to the season one finale of this spinoff series. I can't thank you guys so much for tuning in. Or if you're here for the first time on this spinoff show, welcome. Uh, this is a series where I tackle movies from the 90s that are turning 30. So specifically, we've been covering all movies released in the year 1990 this year. And then, of course, season two will cover 1991 and so on. Um, today is going to be a double feature. That's how we're kicking off December. Uh, first movie will be Edward Scissorhands, starring Johnny Depp and Winona Ryder from director Tim Burton. And then in the second half of this pod, um, in case you're not interested in the first movie, will be Clint Eastwood's The Rookie, starring, of course, Clint Eastwood and Charlie Sheen. That'll be coming up later in the show. But those those are the ones we will be covering today. But I do want to hype up the, the season finale, which is one I'm really excited for and one that I've really started to prep for. And I'm going to be bringing back Daniel Tucker, who will be making his third appearance on this spinoff series. I'm so uh, lucky to have him on and, and talk movies with him. It's always a blast. We did Goodfellas, uh, which is in canon right now. You can check that out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, however you get them, uh, however you listen to them these days. And we just did Rocky Five about around Thanksgiving time. So, yeah, he's he's been on this show quite a bit, and I enjoy it every single time. But we're, we're inching towards that season finale. And we're going to be doing The Godfather Part 3, which will be an interesting one because we're going to be coinciding that movie, uh, the original, with the new one that was just re-released into theaters and on Blu-ray, uh, The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone, which is kind of like a kind of like a re-edited, you know, different beginning, kind of a different ending uh, for The Godfather Part 3. So uh, it, it was a little bit different. But again, I'm I'm just teasing you all. This is going to be the season finale, so I'm building towards that one. We still got a couple of more movies to cover this month, including Kindergarten Cop, Mermaids, um, and a, and, a, and a surprise one, which will be coming early in 2021 in January, because I do have to do a makeup movie because I couldn't find uh, one of the movies that I had originally originally listed for this show because I wanted to do 30 movies each year. For the 30th anniversary. So in January 2021. You'll have an extra episode for this season. But technically the season finale. Will be The Godfather Part 3. And then season 2 will kick off. In February of 2021. I know I, I'm throwing a lot at you there. But just giving you an idea. Especially for those that are listening for the first time. Uh, what I do on this spinoff series. And, and what it is. It's just a, a revisit to the movies. Not really so much a, a deep dive. More just like memories of it and when you first saw it things that you liked or may have not liked about the movie we're going to talk about the box office we're going to talk about the critical reception um whether this movie would be a streaming title or a theatrical movie experience in the year 2020 and i know there's a lot of news out in the world right now with warner brothers changing the game and you know they're going to be doing at least for 2021 movie releases uh, on their streaming app on HBO Max and in the theater at the very same time. So uh, the landscape, ladies and gentlemen, has been changed. So uh, that question could very well be eliminated as I move forward with this spinoff series because, hey, 
there may not be uh, a theatrical experience as far as like that being the only route. There's just the floodgates have been open, and streaming is is here to stay, and it's the evolution, it's the future. Um, but I, I still have hope that the theatrical experience will remain. But uh, I digress. That's a topic for uh, another pod and another time. So without further ado, this is Edward Scissorhands, our first feature in this double feature podcast, two movies in one. Let's kick it off. Enjoy the show. change for you, right, Ed? Those things are cool. Can I bring show and tell on Monday? He's a highly imaginative character. It seems clear that his awareness of what we call reality is radically underdeveloped. Eddie, you take my very breath away. Do you have a girlfriend? Oh, <laughs> is there some special lady in your life? Skewered kid. It's just a scratch. The power of Satan is in him. I can feel it. All along, I felt in my gut there was something wrong with him. From Tim Burton comes the most incredible tale of a most unusual character. Edward Scissorhands. Hold me. Right, here we go. So my earliest memories of Edward Scissorhands was definitely on rewatch on HBO. This was one of those movies they would give a lot of times. A little bit creepy, especially me being like the, the scaredy cat that I am and not really being into horror or anything like just mythical. Like all that stuff really turned me off. Um, Edward Scissorhands is not a scary movie. But the character that Johnny Depp plays is a, is a little bit creepy. And we come to find out that's kind of like his trope. Uh, if you look at the career span of all of his movies, his character is always a little bit quirky and off. And especially his collaborations with Tim Burton were always like wacky. This is the first one, by the way, that they that they worked together in, in a movie. And yeah, so, but I, of course I would watch the movie. But like there were parts where like, yeah, it is like, kind of creepy especially the scenes with with him and uh vincent price who was like this inventor that lived up at the top of a hill very creepy looking very tim burton-esque you know you know the tim burton world you know it's whenever you see one of his movies like you know right away that it's him that directed it like i think the one closest that was just like kind of like you had to scratch your head for a minute and be like is that his movie was probably big fish but other than that 
A lot of his movies are very similar. Uses a lot of the same actors. The same composer, Danny Elfman, which you heard in the trailer there. Um, if you notice, it sounded very much like uh, Batman, the Michael Keaton versions. Um, definitely a lot of the, those same sounds in the Edward Scissorhands movie. Like, got a lot of Batman vibes. Uh, Danny Elfman, I don't know if he was just using, like, maybe unused tracks from the Batman movie. Because remember, Batman came out in 1989, which was a huge box office hit and kind of changed the game as far as, like, big, like, comic book movies. Uh, I know there's been a lot more since then, but that was kind of really the, the big, big mainstream start of it. And uh, this was his next feature. So, yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe Danny Elfman just used a lot of the a lot of maybe alternative tracks because you watch this movie and it sounds very much like Batman 1989, like to a T. Uh, so that was a, a little distracting, but also like a, a nice welcome because I always enjoy the Batman scores uh, done by Danny Elfman. But yeah, a lot of rewatch uh, at home. So uh, I was very familiar with it as a kid. Hadn't really watched it so much now as an adult. So I was kind of revisiting this one after a long period of time. Of course, still like I know the scenes that are coming. I know what happens in the movie. There was nothing really surprising to me other than, uh, and I posted a big rant about this, was the, the, the climax and the end of the movie, which as a kid, you know, it ends and, and that's that. But now me watching it as an adult and it's like man what a what a depressing ending this movie has and this movie did a decent enough box office it was received well critically and the audience even liked it as well so i'm I'm trying to wrap my head around that because you know the the character of edward scissorhands is very likable you know you cheer for him right away you know you sympathize with him and and all these other things, but then when it comes to the ending, it's like, man, what, they really, like, the writer of this movie, I'm not sure if it was Burton himself, but, uh, man, really shit the bed on it, and, and just gave uh, the, that character a really, a really depressing ending, um, and I'll get to that a little bit later, but yeah, those are my earliest memories of it, again, I never saw it at the movie theater, so, again, a lot of these movies that I, that I've watched in the 90s, but as we progress in this series, as the we get to the latter years, you'll start to notice that, yes, I start to see some of these movies in the theater for the first time. But a lot of these early ones was, yeah, cable TV rewatch. And then, of course, HBO became really huge in the late 80s and 90s. Um, here is the synopsis for Edward Scissorhands as given to us by BoxOfficeMojo.com, which is a website where you can check out all the box office analytics of any movie that you've probably ever wanted to know about uh you know except maybe movies before 1970 i know box office didn't really become a thing until like the mid 70s you know and then jaws and star wars and all those godfather that's when it really became a thing and ever since then you can track everything uh that you've ever wanted to know like how a movie did all time how it did its opening weekend how it did daily how it did if it opened on a holiday weekend uh whether it was like a rated R, is it the highest grossing rated R movie? Where does it rank? Like there's so many different avenues you can go with this website and I absolutely love it to death. Uh, I've used it a lot at work. I work in a movie theater, so I'm always interested, always wanting to be in the know of box office numbers. It's a, a really big deal to me and it's just stuff that I like to look at. But, you know, if, you, if you're ever interested in wanting to check out that stuff, I encourage you just go to boxofficemojo.com. You can... 
you can literally spend hours on it searching through so many different things. Even me to this day, like I'll just go on there randomly and search, you know, whatever movie and then just go through all these different branches. Um, this website is powered by imdbpro.com, uh, which is another website app that you can get on your phone. I love to use it because you can search up a movie and you can find out the entire cast. You can look up trivia, goofs, soundtracks, you know, um, quotes, all these different things. There's always somebody that pops up in one of these 90s movies or any movie in general. I'm like, ah, oh, gosh, this person looks so familiar. Who Who are they? And where do I know them from? And right away, I'll look up that movie. I'll see the actor or actress and be like, that's exactly who it is. And that's who I thought it was. And here's where they, they came out. So both really good websites and or apps that you could use, uh, especially for this spinoff series, if you want to play along with me and in, in, in research and, and doing all these fun things w- uh, with these movies as we look back and revisit them 30 years later. All right, folks, here's the synopsis. An artificial man who was incompletely constructed and has scissors for hands leads a solitary life. Then one day, a suburban lady meets him and introduces him to her world. Now, not sure if it's... It looks to be like a period piece. Uh, Looks like it's set like in the 50s, maybe early 60s. You know, it's a suburban area that we're introduced to a lot of the houses are the same different colors like there's a house that's all pink one that's all blue one all green you know you get the picture um and all these it's just very like old school style like think of like blast from the past with brendan Fraser. you know like the way just the way they talk the way they dress the way they gossip everybody's in each other's business you know suburban life in those times everybody's smoking all that stuff and then for some weird reason there's like this dark mountaintop with like a lone house at the top which is where this inventor lived at and not really much is given on his backstory and who he was because this is a story that's told at the beginning uh from the perspective of an old lady who's putting her i'm assuming grandchild to bed and she's asking for a story and she's like no 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 but then all of a sudden just starts to tell the story of edward scissorhands and then here we go into that world. But again, there's not much explanation as to who this inventor was other than he was creating a, an artificial human, which again is kind of crazy in itself, right? Because if this was like, uh, I, I know it's presented as a fairy tale, but I'm I'm trying to think of it logically because everybody else in that suburban neighborhood, they're, they're normal, regular people. There's nothing different or out of this world about them. You know, it, they're just like regular humans on this planet. So you figure if you come across a guy that's, artificially made and he's got scissors for freaking hands you got to figure somehow somebody's gonna call like the fbi or something get a hold of them to see what's going on because it's just that's just if i saw that in the real world like a man with scissors his hands and knowing that he's not fully there or not really like completely human i'm gonna be like okay like this is this is something that needs to be reported needs to be looked into but he lives up there in his uh, in this home, isolated for years and years and years. I, I'm assuming he's like a teenager because, again, he gets into that romance with Winona Ryder, and uh, she plays a high schooler along with Anthony Michael Hall, which I'll get into later. He's tremendous in this movie. Um, 
so yeah, he he lives up there in isolation. Uh, his I think the inventor dies of like a heart attack or something like that as he's constructing uh, Edward Scissorhands, so he doesn't get to finish him. You know, he had hands like human hands ready made for him, but you know he croaks before, and so he's he just stays like that and you know just lives up there. Uh, Diane Weist is in this movie, who's a tremendous delight. She she plays the mom of Winona Ryder. And just of the whole family. So the head of the family is Alan Arkin. Uh, awesome as always as the dad. Diane Weiss as the mom. Uh, you got the little brother who plays. Uh, he's known more famously for being in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And then, of course, Wine on a Writer. That's the family that Edward ends up living with. Um, she's a, an Avon lady. Uh, you know, just going house to house and selling makeup and all that stuff. And people don't aren't into interested in her products and all that stuff. She's just a really, like, really nice woman, you know, doesn't – she's, like, the nicest character in the whole movie, even when Edward Scissorhands does wrong things or whatever. She just kind of plays it off very motherly and very, like, soft-spoken and all that stuff and just, ooh, just very, like, oh, like, that's okay, Edward, like, la, la, la. You know, she's just so great in this. She was perfect role for Diane Weiss, never been more likable. I know there's some movies where she comes out and it's like, eh, she's okay. But here she's just such a delight. Like I liked her a lot in revisiting this. Uh, so yeah, she plays this Avon lady. No one's buying her products, whatever. For some reason, she just decides to drive up to this house where, uh, Edward lives at, you know, she's scoping out the house. She notices it looks abandoned and all this stuff doesn't look creeped out in the sense. I mean, even though the, the ha- the house looks very Gothic and very creepy, just looks like a haunted house in general. And she goes up, makes her way all the way to the top of the, of the house and she finds Edward Scissorhands there in the corner, and he comes. His first appearance is like the creepiest thing you'll ever see, and it's like, holy shit! Like, how did this woman just not run for her life? She looks a little scared at first, and thinks that he has weapons on him, but then realizes like, oh shit! Like, those really are your hands; they're just made of scissors. And she takes him, and the movie really begins. You know that that's the really the the basis of the movie is she. She brings him into this suburban neighborhood, and uh, all these people get enamored with him, specifically the ladies. So this is kind of like the birth of the whole, like, women being hot for Johnny Depp. So I don't know if that's where this started or if it was that horrible movie I covered earlier with Johnny Depp called Cry Baby. Um, sorry, folks, if you like that movie, that's fine, but I, I hated the shit out of it. But I don't know if that fascination started with him in that one or if it grew more on this one. Here he's more of a creepy character, so uh, I don't understand the the fascination all the ladies have with him. There's this one older lady that's like sexually obsessed with him. And it's a little creepy because he's playing like a teenage kid. You know, I know Johnny Depp looks a little older, but I, I'm pretty sure he's playing a teenager. So that was a little bit odd. But anyways, it's just him in this world. There's not really a story. It's just him uh, getting involved with his family and and with the neighbors and you know doing chores and you know just getting just getting totally involved in the world, uh, learning to grasp how to be like a human and having a job and you know whatever people are using him for different things and you know he doesn't seem to mind you know he's interacting and he's he's making friends you know that's one of the things that he's asked upon because he kind of becomes like a little local celebrity there in the town I think he comes out on one of their television shows and. They ask him, like, oh, what's been the best part about being in the neighborhood? And uh, he's like, oh, like, all the friends I've made. So he's kind of just, like, naive to people. A lot of people are there just gossiping, wanting to be in the know about him and, you know, just all these things and questioning all these things about him. 
And um, yeah, so fine. So there's not really much a plot to it. It's just him in that world. And, and again, everybody's just like accepts it. it. It just is like nobody's like, oh man, like who is this guy and why does he have scissors for hands? Like no, nobody in this movie finds it fucking weird. Everybody just finds it to be fascinating. It's like, oh, he can trim my bushes or cut my hair or whatever. And it's just very, very odd how everyone just accepts it. But, you know, again, as this story is being told, we're, we're supposed to understand that it's a fairy tale. You know, I mean, as an adult, I'm just nitpicking at it. Like, I get it's a fairy tale. Like, just let it be. It's a world that is, as I usually like to point out with other stuff. So, um, but that's just me just being nitpicky. So anyways, he finally uh, comes into contact with Winona Ryder. Who at this point in the movie, so he's Edward Scissorhands has kind of like already gotten involved with, you know, the brother, the dad, and the mom, and you know he's grown to know some of the neighbors. Uh, went on a writer's character hadn't been around for a while because she had been camping or hiking or whatever with her friends and her boyfriend played by Anthony Michael Hall uh, returns and you know they have like this kind of weird relationship at first where it's kind of like eh. She really doesn't want anything to do with him. He's completely in awe of her the moment he sets eyes on her. So it's kind of like this little nice little love story, first love at first sight kind of thing. So if that appeals to the teenage kids, I understand it. Uh, even if, as I was growing up and into my teen years, I never really looked at it as a love story. It was just more, to me, it was always just a creepy like little suburban comedy um, with elements of goth. Uh, but I never looked at it as a love story, especially with the way the movie ends. I'm like, what? <laughs> um, so yeah, they 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 have this like kind of friction at the beginning, but then they they grow to to like each other and kind of understand each other, or at least Winona Ryder begins to understand the Edward character a little bit more. Uh, and then of course there's Anthony Michael Hall, who we all know as the guy who usually plays the the geek or the nerd in the John Hughes movies like The Breakfast Club or Sixteen Candles or Weird Science. But here, this is like the first time Anthony Michael Hall's like a little bit older, still playing that teen role. He's a little bit buffer now, but he gets to be the asshole in this movie. And to me, he's like, that's like the, he's like the underrated MVP of this movie. He has like some really shitty dialogue in this movie, but he's really good at playing the asshole because it's so against type because you're used to seeing him as his lovable like geek and you see him in this movie and he's menacing right away from the way he like looks at Edward Scissorhands and all this stuff like it's just something very intimidating about him that he that he's able to pull off and he was able to take that persona and do like other things later on like the dead zone and then uh you know all these different characters that just went into a darker route just completely opposite than what he had done in the 80s uh with the Hughes movies so that was a nice, like, first turn of Anthony Michael Hall in his career where he's like, oh, this is different. He's an asshole, but I kind of like it. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> Let me know if you if you like the Anthony Michael Hall role in this movie. I, I thought it was tremendous. He's got some shitty lines. Uh, as I mentioned, Edward Scissorhands does this television show that's locally. And uh, he ends up getting, like, electrocuted and, like, just hijinks and pranks and or whatever. Or just hijinks ensue in general. And there's a line that Anthony Michael Hall says in, in the movie when that happens where he's like, oh, man, I'd give my left nut to see that happen again. It's like, what? Like, just these weird throwaway lines. And there's this big um, centerpiece, like, little heist that they're trying to do. And it's Anthony Michael Hall. This is where you really, really find out he's a piece of shit and an asshole. 
he gets his crew together, including the girlfriend, went on a rider, and they they figure out how to use Edward as this like locksmith to unlock doors because obviously he's got the blades and can do it without like really leaving any marks or anything. Uh, they leave him trapped in, in a heist gone wrong, and Edward Scissorhands kind of starts to get turned on by the neighbors, and this was mostly at the hands of Anthony Michael Hall and him scheming because he knows that. He's in awe of Winona Ryder, and that's his girlfriend. And, and he teases her about it, and she's like kind of like whatever at first, but then kind of like really starts to like like him. And then when she finds out that Anthony Michael Hall is just being like a dick to, to him for like no reason, kind of like just ends it and quickly falls for him. Again, there's not really much plot to this movie, guys. It's just it's about an hour and like 40, 45 minutes. Um, so yeah, the city turns on him, neighbors turn on him, except for the family, of course, they all like him. Uh, a couple of bad things happen, and then it ends up with this gigantic uh, climax at the the house up top of the mountain between Edward Scissorhands and, uh, and Anthony Michael Hall's character, which he ends up killing. He kills him with a blade in a very scary like scene like where it's like, oh man, is this like, this got went completely dark for no reason. Throws Anthony Michael Hall outside the window, falls to his death. The crowd or the the neighbors make their way to the house. They're all shocked that this kid is dead, and uh, and that's the end of the movie. It's like Edward Scissorhands says goodbye to the Winona Ryder character, and it's like they didn't really get to have a, their love story really like blossom or anything like that. And he just stays isolated up there again. Winona Ryder makes it look like you know. Edward Scissorhands is dead by showing like a, I don't know, an extra pair of of scissors hands like by itself, like cut off, not attached to anything, and tells the neighbors like, hey, like he died, whatever. He, they both killed each other, and like that's that. Like no police, nothing. For all I know, the Anthony Michael Hall body is just there rotting, is just not there anymore. I don't know. Just a really weird ending, and you don't even know like what happened to the Edward Scissorhands character. Like, they show him in a little montage at the end, but, like, we don't really know if that's supposed to be, like, the present day in that movie or if it's just a flashback to his time there before he was discovered by um, Diane Weist. <laughs> is, is that not a depressing ending, folks? Like, he doesn't get the girl, he kills the asshole, and then he ends up just staying in isolation. He doesn't get to go back into society. So I really don't know what this movie was trying to say, if Tim Burton was trying to say anything at all. I know they tried to market this as a kids movie as I was uh, looking into Ebert, Siskel and Ebert's review, which I could kind of get into now, get into the critical reception of this movie. Um, Ebert was kind of like me, thought like the movie like had some nice shots. Uh, it's it's fun. It's entertaining. But like it, it gets very hollow at the end. And again, I described it all for you and you could I could tell you like that's exactly what it is. So, I mean, it left me feeling like, God, it left me feeling depressed. Depressed for the characters, really. Depressed for the Johnny Depp character. Because it's like, what was the point? Like, yeah, he got to, you know, mingle in society. But then at the end, he becomes isolated again. So it's like, what was the point? Like, is the point is that society's bad? Because a lot of these neighbors and whatnot, where they were just shitty people. Like, why would you want to be around them? I don't know if that was the point. But either way, depressing ending. And I don't feel sorry for the Winona Ryder character. And again, I spilled this on Facebook. 
where she's like she's the old lady, right? They covered her in makeup. They they did a really good job with that. So props to them, props to the makeup artist, all that stuff. But I'm I don't feel sorry for that character because at the end of the story, she looks like she's all sad and like wishes wishes she could have been with him or, or whatever. And it's like, you know what? You were the only one that knew that he was still alive. You made everyone else think he was dead. Why couldn't you just like, you know, you couldn't tell your parents like, hey, mom, hey, dad, I'm going to go to the library for a couple of hours. And then, you know, just go sneak off and hang out with him for a little bit. Even if it's not romantically, at least just go be a friend and not leave him isolated up there in that freaking house by himself. Like, I don't feel sorry for your old ass, Winona Ryder. By the way, I freaking love her as a blonde. This, this is probably my favorite role of hers, even though it's like a very, it's not very layered, but she's very pretty to look at. Sorry, I'm going to be a little bit of uh, a guy. And yeah, she was really nice to look at as a blonde. And she's in other movies coming up later in the 90s. Um, we'll see if, if she ends up making the list on some of them. But no, I, I, I liked looking at her in this movie. And maybe that was the whole point of Tim Burton. Just to make it make it a nice looking movie, which it really is. It's got a it's got a nice set, nice set pieces, nice score, nice costume designs, makeup, all that stuff. Maybe that's all Tim Burton was trying to do. Again, he's coming off a year off Batman, nineteen eighty nine, one of the biggest movies ever at that time. So, yeah, uh, Ebert and Cisco were kind of like just uh, you know whatever on it. They enjoyed it, but you know. They left feeling like empty, which is kind of the same way I felt. So I agreed with them on that. Um, let's go to Rotten Tomatoes, which is never really like my go-to in terms of wanting to see or not see a movie. Like I always judge it for myself, but I'm just doing it for you guys just to show you in terms of what the critics were thinking and what the audience was thinking and whether their views like were parallel or whether they were very different. So, for Edward Scissorhands, and again, this was 1990, so not everyone was a critic back then. You know, you only had a small amount of voices. Now, these days, like, everybody's got a freaking YouTube channel, a podcast like I'm doing for you now. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go on record. Like, I am i don't even try to think of myself as a real critic. I try sometimes. I know I'm not the best. I'm not the best well-spoken person, maybe not even the best writer. Um, I just do my best to try to articulate uh, the movies that I like or don't like and and give you reasons for it. Uh, am I the best at doing it? No. But I, I'm self-aware that everybody does it now and I'm not anybody special or anything like that. But, so in 1990, there was a total of 60 reviews for this. Now, is that all of them? Probably not. But these are the ones that are gathered for the website. Now, if Edward Scissorhands would come out today in 2020, there'd be like about 260 reviews. That's just how big the landscape has gotten in the uh, film criticism world. So they gave this a 90%, which is certified fresh. Like, that's high. That's high end. 90%? Now, don't get me wrong. This is a very entertaining movie. Uh, I like it a lot. I would rewatch it again and again. But there are there, there, there there's flaws in it. So I don't totally agree with that. But again, this isn't the barrier for me. I just like to see it as a compare and contrast. And the audience score for this movie was right on par at 91%. And this was out of 1 million user ratings on this website. So the audience, for the most part, liked this movie. And here's the critics' consensus for this movie. 
The first collaboration between Johnny Depp and Tim Burton, Edward Scissorhands, is a magical modern fairy tale with gothic overtones and a sweet center. Now, I agree with that um, with that consensus. It is sweet, especially in the Johnny Depp character. You really sympathize with him. You really He's very likable from the start, very goofy, very funny, very haunted. Uh, the, the hauntedness is what stays with you, at least for me, like watching it as a kid. And even now as an adult, like that's what sticks with you. So they, they, they nailed it just right with it. Um, let's get into the box office numbers of all of this stuff. So this movie was released on December 7th, 1990. Uh, runs at an hour and 45 minutes. It had a budget of $20 million. Again, Tim Burton was, you know, probably one of those these directors that are like, hey, we're going to. We're going to give you all the money that you want to make your next movie. You got, you made Batman for us. You made it a big hit. What do you want to do next before you return to Batman, which would be, I believe, like a year or two later for Batman Returns? Uh, go make another movie if you want. Here's the budget, $20 million. That's pretty high-end for a movie like this. Uh, it's got some nice set pieces. Um, I don't think it's too extravagant, but it is a little bit uh, up there. Like It's got a good look to it. Like Even 30 years later, the movie looks just fine. And play. I saw it in 4K. I rented it in 4K. And it looks tremendous, so it has aged well as far as like the look and presentation of the movie. So a twenty million well spent. Um, this movie went on to gross during its opening weekend, one hundred and fifty nine thousand. Now, I'm not sure if this is like a limited release at first on December seventh, as far as like maybe it was only in a couple of markets and then it expanded, or if this was the actual opening weekend number. I couldn't really figure that one out. But anyways, this movie ends up going to gross $56 million domestic and internationally it grossed around $29 million for a total worldwide gross of $86 million. So that's pretty good for a movie like this. It's uh, it's not a franchise. It's a, it's an original movie. It's a, an interesting concept, right? You know, we, I, I had never seen a movie like this before, um, at least to my knowledge, anything like this. And again, the, the Tim Burton style of it is what really keeps it unique all these years later. So 86 million is a good number. Um, even in, in 2020 standards, that's that's not a bad number. Now, I think obviously this movie would probably open a little bit bigger, especially wow, Johnny Depp's name's kind of like lost its luster over the last couple of years. I know he got real big with the Pirates movies in the, in the 2000s. But um, if he had stayed hot at that time and did like a movie like this, I know he's older now, but... You know, let's take this Johnny Depp into 2020. I think the appeals there for this movie to to make a dent and be a little bit higher, maybe gross around 70 to 80 million. But worldwide, as a total between the U.S. domestic grosses and international, 86 million. I consider this a hit. And uh, yeah, this uh, that's it for the box office numbers of it all. Um, let's talk about a couple of things that I liked about this movie. So number one. Uh, was, of course, the familiarity of the Danny Elfman score. I know I mentioned it was. It sounds very like Batman, like to a T. Um, but I did enjoy it. It makes the movie flow, and it's kind of one of the standouts of Tim Burton movies where, like, it has that, like, you just, you just know. You know when it's a Tim Burton movie, and you know when it's Danny Elfman. And, and that part, it, the score is very haunting, especially, like, in the beginning and then towards the end. When it finishes, uh, in the middle, it's kind of like very campy, very 1950s, 60s. But again, that's the point. They're in that suburban neighborhood. 
But when it gets to that dark stuff, like you, the score really, really uh, gets strong there, and, and it really makes the movie pop. So I really like that a lot. Uh, second thing, of course, Anthony Michael Hall, the MVP of this movie, does a really tremendous job. As the asshole, boyfriend, bully, you know, whatever. He's like the anta- he's the antagonist of the entire movie. Even though technically the neighbors of that whole suburban area, not all of them, but a good chunk of them were pretty much pieces of shit. Um, but Anthony Michael Hall is the, the main villain of this movie. Even though he's not really layered, you know, they don't really give him a chance to be anything but a bully and an asshole. Um, but yeah, he, he was a standout for me. And to this day, like that character plays pretty cool for me and a nice nice touch on anthony michael hall to to accept this role and do something different other than playing like a geek or a nerd and the third thing i like about this movie is of course i'm always fan of of you know when they're doing stuff stuff in movie like eating or making dishes or whatever and of course edward scissorhands does a lot of uh you know cutting of the grass and the bushes cutting uh women's hair cutting the dog's hair uh making dinner like he'll he'll be slicing up lettuce with the scissors and it's like just very cool motions like i don't know i just enjoy little things like that i don't know they 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 work for me for some reason um and even to a degree where he's like struggling uh especially when he sits down to have his first dinner with the family and he's having trouble like lifting you know a pea or a carrot off of his plate to put in his mouth because he again obviously doesn't have real hands, so it's hard for him to grasp any of this. So he's getting used to the world, and it's hard to see him struggle through that. But it's also like, man, I really enjoy. I don't know what's so riveting and, and enjoyable about this scene. I don't know. I'm just weird like that when it comes to little details like that, and I, I enjoy it so much. So those are my three things about this movie. Um, I didn't really think much about trying to recast this thing. Because this is one of those movies where it's like I, you can do it, but I don't know. Like, I guess at the top of my head, I'm looking at the Winona Ryder character, blondish, and this person's been haunting like my thoughts and, and and my timelines and Facebook, Twitter, all that. Don't ask me why. I don't know, but I can see Ariana Grande playing this role of the Winona Ryder character. I don't know why. It just came to mind. Maybe the Edward Scissorhands character could be like a Jonas brother. I don't know. If you want to. If you want to sell this to the teens of today, like those are your stars. I don't know. I'm not really in tune with what's hip as far as like the young, young, uh, like popish actors. Um, you know, I, I'm more old school, you know, the, the 30, 30 age to like above, you know, anybody below like 25, you know, I'm not really versed with who's like on top or who's popular. But if you wanted to like get like two, big mainstream stars together like Ariana Grande and like one of the Jonas brothers could play the Edward Scissorhands character. So I guess there I did my recasting for 2020, but as far as everybody else doesn't really matter. It's only mainly you're, you're sucked into these two characters for the most part, but it's, it's kind of hard to, to match the Johnny Depp charisma that he brings to the role. Like, cause it, it's more, he doesn't do a lot of talking, but a lot of it is in his facial expressions and, you know, there's different ways of doing charisma. And it's like, could a Jonas brother do what Johnny Depp did in this movie? Could uh, could Ariana Grande be as sweet and, like, just very 
conflicted as Winona Ryder makes this character out to be, even though this is just my description of it. It's not really how it's presented in the movie. But, you know, she has to give those facial expressions of sympathy and, and all that stuff. I'm sure Ariana Grande can pull it off. I only This year, in the year 2020, and I can't believe I'm spending a lot of time on this, I never knew that Ariana Grande was a descendant of Nickelodeon and was on a television show called Victorious and then Sam and Cat. I only know that because my daughters freaking watch this show religiously on Netflix and I'll have to binge watch it with them sometimes. And I'm like, is that Ariana Grande? And sure enough, it was. And I'm like, holy shit. I had no idea she she acted. I always thought she was just a singer from the get-go. But that just goes to show like how like far out of that game I am and how much older I am and how much I'm just in my world that I don't pay attention to stuff like this. I'm not I'm not hip or in tune. So but she she's pretty funny, can play goofy, in which this Winona Ryder character is a little goofy sometimes, so she can play that a little bit naive and like not dumb and at all, but you know, just very naive. Um so I, I think she could pull it off. I think that's a nice little recasting. If you have a problem with that, let me know or other actors who you think might be suitable for these roles. But again, I just thought of these at the top of my head, literally. So apologize if it was not well thought out, but wasn't going to really do a recasting until it just, it all came to me at once. I don't know. It just happens for me sometimes like that. Um, Would this movie be a streaming flick in 2020 or would it get the actual theatrical movie experience? Now, if you kind of promote this as kind of horror-ish, scary-ish, which you really can with the dark score, the dark like colors, the, the look of Edward Scissorhands is kind of menacing, you can pull it off as marketing it as a horror movie and it'll work in a theater, but then you find out it's like a love story and a kind of like just this really odd gothic fairy tale. Don't know if it would fly with the audience today, but... Going how the critics liked it and the audience liked it, I think it would still translate well in 2020. I'm going to give it a shot here for the for it being a theatrical release. You know, this thing would get lost if it got released like on Amazon Prime. It would just be a movie that's there that you could watch, but it wouldn't really get talked about. And that's my whole thing with preserving the theatrical experience. It's about like it's about conversation and uh, water cooler talk, or you know, just hey, what'd you do this weekend? Oh, I went to the movies and I saw this. I just feel like now with streaming, with streaming shows and movies, like stuff is just going to get lost in the void. It's just, it's just stuff that's there and it's not really talked about. Like, for example, I'm into this show called Cobra Kai and it started off as this YouTube show. It's on Netflix now and it's, it's, it's presented as a Netflix original, which it's not. Um, it started off on YouTube, uh, YouTube Red and, all episodes of the show would get released uh, at one time, and it started in April 2018. And I would finish it within hours, and I would be excited about it and talking about it. But then, like, I move on, and like, I, I don't mention it again until I, I'm ready for season two a year later. And it's like stuff just gets lost. Like, yeah, you could get excited about it, but then you just move on. I just watched another series right now, Saved by the Bell, a reimagining. Uh, an updated version of it. I I thought it was super tremendous, but I watched it all during like right before Thanksgiving or the week of binged it in a night. And I haven't talked about it since plus. And a lot of that is also because like what kind of money are people spending 
uh, as far as like to which which platforms and which which is going to get their attention. So it's kind of hard to like what's the topic of conversation? What's the popular thing? And that's what that's what I love so much about box office and, and movie theaters is like you have a movie of the moment that you could talk about. You know, do I want to see the next you know Spider Man movie on Disney Plus? And it just gets lost in there, and you watch it whenever you can watch it, and and it's not all of us at the same time, and that's why the movie theater experience to me is so vital. It's so important. So, for Edward Scissorhands in 2020, I think it still works. There's some movies that I've covered on this on this show where you would throw it on a streaming platform, and it'll get lost, and that's just the way it is. But that's just my perspective on it. I know there's a lot of people that love streaming, and don't get me wrong, I love to stream movies too. But you know, it kind of makes it feel a little bit more special when it's on a big screen and then you're sitting in a crowd and I know we're in this pandemic so it's kind of weird to say that now but hopefully you know we can get back to that and I know there's all these deals that have been made and the landscape is changing really quickly but we can't totally forget about the theatrical experience because it's important and it's important for like a movie like this because it'll be talked about and it'll be remembered other than just like, oh, hey, look, it's an option on a streaming service. Do I want to watch it? Eh, maybe later. I'll put it on my list. And then you never get back to it. So those are my thoughts on that. And lastly, does this movie, does this movie age 30 years later? Um, there's some stuff in this movie that doesn't work in terms of like, you know, doing like, you know, like, like, I, like I mentioned earlier, there's, there's this like sexually obsessive older woman that's into the Johnny Depp character and it's, it's kind of weird, you know, you know, if you do it the other way around where if it's a, an older man going after a teenage girl, like I'm sure everyone's going to like throw their fists in the air as you should, but it shouldn't be a double standard, right? Where it's only like wrong if, if it's an older guy on a teenage girl. Uh, it's the same thing if it's an older woman on a teenage boy, like it's the same thing, like can't have double standards and you know, that stuff, stuff like that doesn't age well, but as far as like the look and presentation, um, the fairy tale aspect of it is fine. Again, it's flawed and it's ending and it's depressing ending, which I went about extensively. Um, but other than that, it's a, it's a very entertaining movie. Um, it's still talked about, uh, to this day, people know what it is. You mentioned Edward Scissorhands. Everybody knows who's in it. And, uh, it's one of Tim Burton's more popular movies, you know, along with the Batmans and, uh, you know, he's done a lot of, a lot of stuff, Beetlejuice. He's done a lot of stuff, and that's one of his. Uh, that's at least one of my favorite collaborations that he did with uh, Johnny Depp. Um, so yeah, I enjoyed it a lot in this revisit as an adult, but definitely enjoyed it a lot as a kid. So yes, it does age thirty years later. I'm happy to have revisited it. It was fun, and that is Edward Scissorhands, folks. Check it out. Uh, it's available on 4K now, and I'm telling you. It, most, a lot of these movies don't transfer well on the upgrade. You know, when you go from DVD to Blu-ray and now 4K. Some movies don't age well like that. But this one, it looked really well. looked nice. The colors, everything popped and everything. So, yeah, it's a good watch. It's uh, You can rent it for like, I think it's like five bucks on Vudu. That's what I did. In 4K. It's, a, it's, it's well worth your five bucks to, to recheck it out. If you haven't. Uh, or you can go back. Uh, rewind this podcast and uh, check out that movie rented come back listen to this and then see what you thought about it but that's going to do it for this movie for now again this is a double feature so we're going to take a quick break 
And when we come back, I'm going to tackle the rookie with Clint Eastwood and Charlie Sheen. This is Palace Off the Top Rope presents 90s Films Turn 30. We'll be right back. He'll make you laugh. He'll make you cry. I can't. But most of all, you'll fall in love with Edward. I'll be darned. The best film of the year is Edward Scissorhands, rated PG-13. Now playing at theaters everywhere. All right, welcome back to this double feature of Palace Off the Top Row presents 90s Films Turn 30. Or if you're joining for the first time and didn't care about that first movie, welcome for the first time. Hello. Uh, we are going to be talking about Clint Eastwood's The Rookie, starring Clint Eastwood himself and Charlie Sheen. This was a first-time watch for me. Uh, I knew about this movie growing up, but, you know, as a kid, you're not really into movies like this. You want all the fun stuff. The fun stuff like I just talked about, the Edward Scissorhands, uh, the Batmans, the... The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, all that shit. You know, it wasn't later on that I, you know, started to appreciate movies more for what they are and, and broadened my horizons and watched all these different things. And to this day, I'm still learning movies. I, don't, I, I, I like to say that I know a lot about movies. Doesn't mean that I've watched them all, but I was aware of this movie and always saw a little bit of interest in it because I do like Charlie Sheen. And of course, Clint Eastwood is Clint Eastwood, one of the the greatest of all time, not just an actor, but also director as well. So uh, after, you know, my years growing up and having seen different Eastwood movies and, you know, having seen him act in all these like other great like stuff that he's done, I had high expectations for this movie. And again, uh, I know this is the first time watch for me, but I'm also going to try to be objective and see if this movie has aged 30 years later and whether it was a movie that was just for its time or if it's held up. So, without further ado, Charlie Sheen and Clint Eastwood in The Rookie. Enjoy the show. A little early for Christmas shopping, ain't it? Who's up front in the cab? Santa Claus. And I'm the Tooth Fairy. Clint Eastwood is Sergeant Nick Polovsky. What you might call a seasoned cop. Charlie Sheen is Detective David Ackerman. What you definitely call a rookie. Good work, kid. Now read them their rights. You think I like dragging around after you all day? I hate it. And I hate the way you drive. Shut up. hundred reasons why I don't blow you away. Right now, I can't think of one. It's time for me to stop being scared. It's for other people to start. When I go, I go with a bang. Fasten your seatbelt. 
Clint Eastwood, Charlie Sheen, Raul Julia, Sonia Braga, The Rookie. You're too far from your thoughts, am I? From my nightmares is more like it. All right, here we go. So I gave you the spiel right at the at the end of the commercial break uh, that I didn't see this movie as a kid, so I won't spare you that. This is a first time watch for me. Here is a synopsis. For the rookie as given to us by BoxOfficeMojo.com, which is powered by IMDb Pro. I won't uh, go into all that spiel again, too, because that would just be redundant, wouldn't it? I thought so. Anyways, here it is. Super plain. A veteran detective gets stuck with a rookie cop when in pursuit of a German crook. Now, I'm going to say for the record, I, I hated this movie. You know, I mentioned I had high expectations because it's directed by Clint Eastwood. Eastwood's in it. Charlie Sheen was, could have been something, you know, 19, the 90s were like, the early 90s were like really good for Charlie Sheen, uh, but he's going to go 0 for 2 in this series, uh, I did one earlier called Men at Work with his brother Emilio Estevez, which was another film I liked as a kid, but revisiting it as an adult, like it was atrocious, um, I, I don't, that one's probably more enjoyable because it's a comedy and it's wacky. This one is playing it off like a lethal weapon type thing, so I just hated it from the get-go. It's two hours, but man, does it fucking drag. Um, it's totally lifeless. Um, at times, it looks like Charlie Sheen is trying, but it looks like he's also in a different movie because they're trying to play this off as like buddy cop, right? If you could hear the trailer, right? It's got that wacky, which is actually one of my favorite things in this movie, the little score, which I can't buy on find on spotify or anything like that so come on spotify pick it up with your score game i'm all about that stuff so uh, that's about as much as i enjoyed about this movie but again it plays it real wacky and the character that charlie sheen plays in this movie is like dealing with like traumatic effects as a kid and and that's why he becomes like a cop but it doesn't work here because it's supposed to be like opposites uh total opposites just like lethal weapon you know you got you got the old timer by the book uh Danny Glover type and then you got the wild card who's all like crazy and you know just just a total wild card in the Mel Gibson type and the late 80s we saw like the emergence of Lethal Weapon and other buddy cop movies as we went into the 90s so I don't know if this was Warner Brothers saying hey Clint Eastwood can you give us like another t I know we have Lethal Weapon but can you give us another type of buddy cop and he was just like you know whatever and he you could totally tell he's phoned in on this performance um, his directing, it's just, it's whatever. It, it's one of his more forgettable movies. I know he has a long catalog, and I'm going to be diving into one of his his earlier works. Uh, you know, Westerns were his thing, like, early on in his career, and I'm going to be diving into that and doing a, a special podcast plug there uh, with my buddy Paco Torres. Don't worry, buddy, it's coming. I'm going to be watching those movies soon. We'll get together and talk about them. But, yeah, so there's a long list of, of Clint Eastwood stuff, and... You know, I've seen more of his later works, you know, the Million Dollar Babies, the Grand Torinos, the the Mule, you know, stuff like that. His other direct his other directed movies like Mystic River, you know, so he he does a hell of a lot better than he does here. And he had already been directing for some time, so again, just total phoned in performance, total phoned in directing. Um this would have been a good vehicle for Charlie Sheen had it been a good movie. Uh, again, he blossoms later on, you know, 
doing comedy and also kind of doing action. I know in the, in 1990, he also did the movie Navy Seals, which didn't make the cut for this one. Maybe it will if I decide to pick that as an extra for season one. Now I'm thinking about it. It sounds like a really good idea, but, uh, that'll be decided later on. Um, but yeah, he goes over two in this series and, um, he tries here, but it just doesn't work. And, and it's very, very lazy again at two hours and it felt like a two and a half hour movie. Like, when a movie drags, like it feels like it goes on forever. Um, so that's basically what the movie is. It's it's everything you've ever seen in a buddy cop movie. You know, it's a generic villains. Raul Julia's in this. Like he's fantastic. He's fantastic overall. He's not good in this movie because he's not really given much to work with. Uh, so that that sucks for him, and it sucks for everybody involved in this movie. And it, because you know you got a lot of great talent in this movie. Uh, even uh, the girlfriend played by Laura Flynn Boyle, um, she's Charlie Sheen's girlfriend, and she's like given the most basic dialogue, just a nothing character, and she's a pretty good actress, I think. I think she could she she was good in Baby's Day Out, which is the movie I may cover later on in this series. Like she's good as the mom, but here she's just the girlfriend, and it's like it's nothing. Like nothing flows in this movie. The chemistry is really off. Like the one liners are really bad. Um, but I'll get into that in a little bit more because spoilers, there's going to be a lot of stuff I didn't like about this movie. Um, so that that's the basic gist of the movie. You know, opposites attract. They have to go chase down a bad guy. They hate each other. They like each other. They work, end up working with each other in the end. You know, that buddy cop, buddy cop uh, movies usually always follow the same tropes. Um, and I'm okay with that as long as they're done well, like the Lethal Weapon movies and... Uh, you know, more recently, like, you know, or not more recently, but, you know, you look at Rush Hour, you know, I, I even loved Tango and Cash, which is probably my favorite one other than the Lethal Weapon series. Um, you know, the, the sometimes and it's all with the chemistry and the actors and Eastwood and Sheen are just don't work together here at all. Um, so let's get into the critical reception of this movie. Uh I didn't mention it in the in the first half of this pod, but Siskel and Ebert is what I'm really looking forward to uh, when revisiting this, these movies because they were really the the heart uh, of the critic community in the '90s. They were plastered over posters at the movie theater, or you know, when you're renting a movie at Blockbuster, if you were looking at the box, deciding should I rent this movie? Is it worth it? You know, not that it was live and die by their word, but if you saw like a two thumbs up on that box, you're like, oh, okay, this might this might be a pretty good movie. And I'm not saying they're always right. Or they're always wrong, but it's just you know we kind of relied on that. It, it, it's easier now for us because we all everybody's got an opinion, right? Everybody's got something to say. But back then, like we really trusted these people with their critiques on movies, their opinions, and all that stuff. So their their uh, opinions really weighed heavy with a lot of people, and at least with me, you know, I, I really paid attention to them. I like watching their shows, and uh, later on, after you know Cisco had passed away, I would still watch Ebert's show that he did with Richard Roper and then eventually he just went online you could read his reviews some of them or if not a good chunk of them on his website and uh, they're nice to go back and read every once in a while because he's really really articulate in the way he talks about movie in a way I wish I could do it but I know I'll never be at that level not even if I tried my absolute hardest Um, but I I still do enjoy reviewing movies and even the even the bad ones like you know they're not all going to be they're not all going to be hits and winners like this one this one was just it was it was awful and i love clint eastwood to death i love charlie sheen but it just this movie doesn't work 
Um, they both gave it two thumbs down. They said it was just so generic and totally phoned in. And again, I, I agreed with everything that they said. I felt the exact same way. And um, I know it was a movie from 1990, so maybe I shouldn't judge it so harshly. Maybe it was just a movie made for that time. But, you know, to this day, they still make, like, buddy cop movies. And it's still the same trope. So, yes, like, maybe the movie itself as a look of it and, and maybe the cars that they drive, all that is aged. But the themes and, 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 and the tropes that they all do in these movies, like, they're still similar. So, um, to that end, like, yeah, I, I agree with everything Siskel and Ebert said about this movie. And now let's turn to Ron Tomatoes, and I tell you, I've told you earlier why I look at this website. It's more just a compare and contrast between the critics and the audience. So, out of a total of only 14 reviews here, this movie has a 29%. So, without going into all of them specifically, which you can read on here on on Ron Tomatoes, uh, most people did not like this movie. Uh, the audience was in agreement. It's got a 36%. It's a little higher out of 20,000 user ratings. So. They also didn't like this movie, and uh, I I completely agree with all of this. There's no consensus on it, so there's not enough reviews to put out something like that for this movie. So, I mean, it's just totally forgettable, and sorry if this ends up being like a short episode for this movie because there's really, really not much worth talking about as far as... uh, And and it's a movie with Clint Eastwood in it, right? It's a guy that already had a lot of weight in Hollywood and was already considered one of the greats. Uh, let's, let's look at the box office numbers of this thing. So as far as a budget, so again, also released on December 7th, 1990, 30 years, uh, ago today. So congratulations on it reaching that feat or we've come that far and we're still like somewhat revisiting it. I mean, I chose it, but still, um, it had a budget of 10 million. Okay. For a movie like this, that's fine. You know, you have your, your action shootouts. There's this ridiculous, ridiculous set piece at the end where Clint Eastwood and Charlie Sheen are driving in a convertible car and they got to drive it out of a building like on the middle to top floor because there's a bomb that's about to go off in it. And it's your typical car bashing through the windows, the building blowing up just in time and the car barely escaping the flames. Like totally, totally like, you know, by the numbers action scene uh, in, in that type of movie. So... You can see where some of the budget and where it went. And box office wise, this is a dud, folks. It had an opening weekend of five million. Now you figure with a name like Charlie Sheen on the rise and Clint Eastwood kind of like already established as like kind of like a legend in the business. Uh, been been around for a very long time. This only grosses twenty one million in the United States of America. Now there's no international grosses reported for this movie. Again, there was some movies in 1990 that did have international uh, grosses and some that didn't. I don't know how the markets worked back then. Again, I was still young, so I didn't know how it is. So nowadays, everything usually is released internationally. But maybe back then, there were some movies that didn't get that distribution all the way, even though this is from a big studio from Warner Brothers. But $21 million overall, that's that's really bad, even in today's standard. Like if this movie... Made twenty one million overall, like that's a big flop because usually a buddy cop movie will gross at least above fifty million, at in the least. So yeah, box office really bad, and now I can get into the things that I didn't like about this movie. So, well, there's one thing. So let me start with that, right? Because obviously this is a complete negative on this movie, and I, I don't recommend it, and it's totally skippable. 
You don't need to revisit it or see it for the first time in any manner. Uh, I did like that crazy, wacky, like, score where it's, like, you could tell, like, that's the really the only thing that makes it, like, a buddy comedy. Because other than that, you can really sell this as a very dramatic movie, even though Clint Eastwood is trying his hardest to throw one-liners every now and then, but everything falls flat in this movie. So, yeah, I do love that wacky theme. Again, you, you hear it when, you, when you're when you playing the trailer at the beginning of this pod. Um, and I like that. That kept it going for me. I wish they played it a little bit more throughout the movie. It would have made it more enjoyable. But you hear the first – I think it, it plays like twice or three times in the movie. I'm like, okay, cool. I can – It may. I, I paid attention whenever that was going on. So there's that. Um, other than that, it's real negative. Uh, first thing I didn't like, there's this running gag in the entire movie – where, you know, Clint Eastwood's a smoker. I don't know if he smokes cigars or whatever. And every single time he's going for one or grabs one out of his pocket, he goes to the next person. He's like, hey, you got a light or you got a light. And it's like he's trying to do it in a comedic way. And it's like, dude, if you're if you're such a big fucking smoker of cigars and stuff, how do you not carry a lighter on you? And, again, it's not until the end when it pays off. And, again, I get it. I get the gag. And I get that it's going to get paid off in the end. And Charlie Sheen's going to give him a light whenever Whenever they defeat the villain and they're all beat to shit or whatever. But it just didn't work for me as a guy that's like, you know, as a punchline, it didn't work. And Maybe it's just the way he delivered it, the line. And Eastwood's pretty good at delivering one-liners. like, But this one just didn't work, and, and I hated it. It ran too many times throughout that movie. I don't know how many characters he comes into cross with, and he's like, you got a light. And it's like he's so forcefully doing it that it was just like, oh, stop it. Stop doing that. Eastwood, you're better than this. I'm so it sucks that you really phoned it in for this one because this I think this really could have been like a little mini franchise, you know, had they really put some effort and thought into the story and even this to the performances, except other than Charlie Sheen, nobody else is really trying. And then uh, again, the 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 side story of what Charlie Sheen is trying to overcome uh, his his dad in the movie played by Tom Skerritt, uh, another fine character actor. Um, he's he's trying to overcome demons with that. And something that happened to a family member when he was a kid. And again, if it's a more serious movie, if they treated it that way, this story works. But it like totally falls flat. It feels like a whole different other movie. Uh, Charlie Sheen has his relationship with Lauren Flynn Boyle, which is hit or miss. Like they love each other one scene and then the other minute is like he's getting mad at her for no reason. And she's just trying to be understanding of him. But again, she's not really given much to work with. So she's kind of like just there. And uh, she does get to have a cool moment at the end where she blows a bad guy uh, with a couple of bullets and a gun. I thought that was pretty cool. But other than that, she just she's just a nothing character, and nothing against her. Like I, I like her, but you know she she was nothing in this movie, and just like mainly everybody was in this movie, a big bunch of nothing. You know, you got Tom Scary, like make use of it, make good use of it, and it just all falls flat. And yeah, this is a. Uh, it's going to be a short episode, guys, <laughs> for at least for this one. At least you have the whole chunk of Edward Scissorhands to go back and, and listen to if you enjoy it. But, man, this movie, so awful. Um, I mean, not the worst movie I've ever seen. I give it about two out of four stars. Again, I follow the Ebert rule. When I'm rating my movies, he does his one to four, four being the highest, obviously. And I know people do five and six stars and all that stuff. But, no, I, I, I'm old school Roger Ebert. So anytime you see my movies being rated, and if you see like a four, if you see a four, that means like I thought it was like 
almost a masterpiece, epic, all that stuff. But if you see like two and below, didn't really like it, two and a half, kind of like on the fence on it. And for the most part, three is an average, like it's a good movie. Like it's entertaining, it's good. Like it doesn't have to be the absolute best or out of this world changing. No, three stars is good. Three and a half, it's like, okay, wow, there's Palace saw something there, like that it could really be like great. And then four stars, of course, perfect. Perfect rating. So, yeah, that's why I do it like that. Follow Roger Ebert. And as you can see, that's why I include him in when I'm whenever I'm revisiting these 90s movies. Um, buddy cop movies are still done to this day, so recasting is not really a big deal. And I, I definitely would not want to recast this movie or redo it again, especially if you have the same script, same villain with no real like motivation other than he kills Eastwood's partner. That's the only motivation in this movie. And that's really what drives Clint Eastwood's character. But other than that, like the villain is so generic, like he doesn't have any motivations or if he does, like they're not really clearly spoken in this movie. Like I'm sure they're doing like bad bad guy things, but you don't care because this is a movie doesn't work. So yeah, if if I'm remaking this movie, forget it. I don't care who I recast. But buddy cop movies have been done a lot throughout the years as comedies, as dramas, as action movies straight up. You know, you look at comedy-wise, yeah, Lethal Weapon you can consider, but it's a little more action and you can add in the drama there. When, you, when you're talking about comedy buddy cop, the other guys with Mark Wahlberg and Will Ferrell, that's like one of the top-notch buddy cop movies like ever made. So if you, if you want to see a good, funny one, check that one out. But this one, The Rookie, don't revisit it. Don't go watch it for the first time. If you see it, like, oh, Charlie Sheen, Clint Eastwood, a Clint Eastwood movie, yeah, like it has all all the selling points. It has everything, like, that you would enjoy if you like these people. Like, it's all there, but the movie doesn't deliver at all. And then when it ends, it ends, and I'm so glad it ended, even though it took forever. And lastly, this would definitely be a streamer. This would definitely be on a Netflix. They'd hype it up, but then it would just get lost in the shuffle. It wouldn't make like the top 10 the way they do on their platform now where they give you the top 10 most popular um, streaming you know, shows or movies or whatever. It wouldn't even make that. It's just so hollow. It's so lifeless, and it's so phoned in. And I'm sorry. They're not all going to be winners, and I'm not going to pretend to be – or I'm not going to be one of these people that like likes everything. Like, yeah, there's – elements or whatever in it that i found interesting or whatever but i'm not gonna just be like hey that movie was awesome like and and just throw it out there for for no reason like no i'm gonna be honest with you i'll give you my honest opinion every single time and this was a bad movie and i didn't want it to be because i saw it and i was like i was so looking forward to it when i when i made my list for the 30 movies that i wanted for for this uh for this 1990 year I was like, oh, I can't wait when I get to the rookie. That's probably going to be uh, an underrated gem. And didn't turn out to be. Oh, well. But uh, that's going to do it for that movie, and that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for joining on this double feature, uh, and you'll be getting another double feature next week. Here are the two movies that are going to be covered. Luke Who's Talking to, featuring the voices of John Travolta, or not, I think he stars in the movie, sorry, featuring like the voices of Bruce Willis, Roseanne Barr, also stars Kirstie Alley, and then Mermaids, which will be a first-time watch for me, that stars Cher, and I think Winona Ryder, so she'll be back next week on this series, and then of course, December 22nd, Kindergarten Cop with Arnold Schwarzenegger, 
And then, again, we're all leading to the season one finale of this spinoff series, The Godfather Part 3 with Daniel Tucker. Looking Really looking forward to that one. So those are the movies that are left. And again, we got an extra one that I'm going to give you all, but that'll be in January, sometime in the middle of January, whenever I'm done with my Cobra Kai Season 3 stuff. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll drop that in in the middle of January because Season 2 of this spinoff series will kick off in February, and I won't reveal the title just yet, even though I gave a little bit of a spoiler uh, picture list. If you follow my uh, Twitter account of Palace Off the Top Rope, you'll see that there's a screenshot there of some of the movies that are going to be uh, for the year 1991 as we head into 2021, and it'll be the 30-year anniversary of that year and those movies that came out, and we can celebrate them. But that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you guys so much if you tuned in uh, to either one or both. Again, I, I can't thank you enough. I, I really do appreciate it. Um, you can follow this podcast on Spotify. Search Palace Off the Top Rope. Hit that follow button for me. Um, I do share this podcast link through my social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram through podbean.com. You can download the app. You can listen in on your phone. If you're an Apple person, you got your iPhone. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, folks. Do me that favor. Give me that five-star rating. I would greatly appreciate it. Not because if you think the show is that great. If you do, awesome. Give it the five stars. But mostly I want the five stars because I want to start to trend and start to make this show a little bit more popular. Maybe have it chart somewhere. That would be great. Uh, that's my goal for for year two of this podcast. You know, Just being able to do it consistently was my first goal, which I've done. I've done it for a full year. Uh, and I'm happy to continue doing it, bringing on guests. It's such a such a thrill for me, and it's it's a fun hobby. And who knows if the right person were to listen to this and think I have some sort of talent or whatever, maybe I can try to make this into a career or somewhat. And I know I've got a lot of work to do. I know some of you may be listening, being like, "This guy fucking sucks," but I am trying. And right, isn't that the goal in life? Is to try, try like just try hard. And that's what I'm doing with this. So thank you guys so much. I want you all to have a good week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Passenger seatbelt. Plenty's work with Sergeant Nick Malonsky. Charlie Sheen is the rookie. Who's up front in the cab? Santa Claus. I'm the tooth fairy. <laughs> Clint Eastwood, Charlie Sheen, in The Rookie, rated R. Starts Friday, December 7th at a theater near you.